Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Uh, welcome back to the show. Before uh, we turn it over to our guest today, let me give you a brief introduction for Colin McCann. I know some of you uh, might not be familiar with him, uh, but he is uh, an, a novelist who has received uh, such prestigious awards as the National Book Award in 2009. He has uh, been given the title of the best and brightest young novelist by Esquire magazine in 2003. He has written uh, not just 10 novels, but he's also had his work appear in The New Yorker, in Esquire, in The New York Times, in The Paris Review. Uh, he's done a, a lot of stuff. He's from uh, Dublin, Ireland. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. If, uh, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, uh, I record a couple episodes actually from a trip that I went on with Telos, which is a uh, peacemaking organization uh, that works for a pro-Israeli pro-Palestinian future. And uh, if you want more about kind of like an introduction to that conflict, um, I'd encourage you to go look up those episodes with Todd Dethridge and uh, Jason Miller. And uh, I think you're going to find those as like a great introduction. But uh, the book that we're going to talk about with Colin today also would serve in that capacity quite well. So uh, here we go. Colin McCann of Dublin, Ireland on the podcast. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. I am honored today to have Colm McCann. Welcome to the show, sir. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, uh, and you are uh, up north, out in the woods. I'm out in the woods, out in the woods. Now, and people, fa- when they hear... Sorry. Go ahead. No, my family's in, 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 in Long Island, so I'm missing them terribly. Now, when people hear your accent, if they don't know you from uh, your illustrious CV, uh, they're going to assume that you don't have the accent of someone who's typically from uh, the northern parts of the United States. No, uh, although um, uh, I've lived all over the United States. I actually came here uh, from Dublin. I'm originally from Dublin. I came here in my early 20s and took a bicycle across the United States, starting up in uh, Boston, down the eastern seaboard, across through Louisiana into Texas, into Mexico, back up through New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, all the way to San Francisco uh, over the course of about a year and a half um, on on a bicycle, on, a, on an 18-speed bicycle, which was a, an incredible journey. But that's over 30 years ago. <laughs> I'm wow. eight myself. Well, okay, so you're, you're in your 20s. You decided to do this because of what reason? Well, um, so I was a journalist and I started out in journalism pretty young. Um, my father was a journalist and I worked for the newspapers. I actually began working for the newspapers in Ireland at the age of 12, uh, reporting on soccer matches. And, and, and then um, I got a full time job when I was about uh, 17, uh, almost 18. And I had a page in the newspapers and um, I was doing pretty well. I was a reporter. and um, But a part of me wanted to go away to try to write a novel. Uh, so I went to, to the United States to try to write a novel. I failed miserably. <laughs> like, uh, I spent a whole summer trying to write and I realized I had very little to write about, to be honest with you. And so um, I you know, what did my Kerouac journey? I was in my Kerouac phase and uh, I wanted to be like Jack Kerouac and go go discover America. So uh, I hopped on a bicycle and then spent the next year and a half basically sleeping outdoors. Uh, it was a, it, it was an incredible and, and it's really interesting, Luke, because I, I, I'm kind of thinking nowadays I'd like to go back because I'm really interested to see whether or not 
America is still the same as what I saw it um, a while ago. And even though we're so divided uh, or seemingly so divided, uh, I have a sneaky feeling that maybe uh, it's it's much like it used to be. Um, and that's that, that that that's that that's unusual. I know uh, things things seem to be bad out there right now. And I do a lot of work with with kids and uh, rural, rural and urban parts of the country through an organization I work with called Narrative Four. Um, but I think we're a lot more purple than we are red or blue. Uh, what makes you think that? I just, it, it, it's, it's my gut feeling. I think a lot of people are coming indoors. A lot of people are scared. A lot of people are, are, are scared to say, I don't know. A lot of people are scared to say these things are contradictory. But I think deep inside, at the deep heart's core, and um, that people are are much more nuanced, much more um, I don't know, like scuffed up in a in, in a good healthy way than we're w- willing to admit. We just need something to release that uh, in us. That's kind of an optimistic point of view because a lot of people are saying that you know America's in trouble um, and that Americans are divided and that we are completely at odds uh, with one another. There's one. You know, corner that's red, one corner that's blue, you know, uh, left, right, so on. But I have a sneaking suspicion that um, somehow, uh, and it might even be these terrible days that we're going through right now with the pandemic, that somehow we will access um, a more, I don't know, a more democratic core, the, the, a, a sort of more, um, quote unquote, American-ness uh, that, that, that certain people seem to have lost. Certainly, I will tell you this. 30 years ago on a bicycle um i this was an incredible country to um, to to go around incredibly friendly open uh, and curious and um and so it would be uh, i think a good journey maybe even to go i have a son who's a cyclist as well uh to go and to write a book about it because that's uh, you know basically I started my writing career because I was on the road listening to people's stories and uh, people fascinate me. People interest me. I would read that book. Uh, if you if you and your son decide to paint that journey and decide to write about it, I think you definitely should do it. I, I love your uh, sneaking suspicion that we're more purple than we think. Everyone seems to be red or blue. Uh, I, I think my work uh, as a pastor, I think you find people are far more complicated and layered, or, or to use your metaphor, scuffed up in a good way, than what the uh, the pictures that we see on the screens tell us. Exactly, I think you're right, and 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 and, and I think if we um, if if we have somebody who helps us, um, you know, to see that, if we have some sort of leaders, I'm not going to get political here, but if we have certain um, people who can come in, um, you know. Uh, I think a lot these days about Walt Whitman, uh, uh, and for Walt Whitman um, was re- very interesting in, in in the sense that he would say like you know every atom belonging to me as good as belongs to you, and, and do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes, and 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 if this country contained 
anything at all uh, for the duration of its history, certainly up till now, it has contained multitudes um, and it has allowed multitudes. It's allowed people like me as an immigrant to come in. Um, it, it has allowed people to go across borders and boundaries and so on. If we refuse to access that part of the American character uh, or if we come indoors, if we put a GPS on our imaginations, uh, then we're going to be in trouble. Then we will become a different place. But a part of me feels that uh, we can still get through uh, all of this. And I will tell you that, um, say, for example, uh, so I just mentioned Narrative 4, uh, which is an organization which is very dear to my heart. Uh, and I know we're probably going to talk about a number of these sort of organizations, including Telos and Narrative 4 and so on. But um, Narrative 4 is a global story exchange organization where we get young people to walk in one another's shoes. You tell my story, I tell yours. So, for example, we bring kids together from the South Bronx, which is the second poorest congressional district in the country, uh, with kids to, uh, from from uh, southern Kentucky, uh, Floyd County, Kentucky. Now, you would think that these kids, you know, one is primarily African-American and or immigrant. One is primarily white and or uh, Cherokee. Uh, you know, one is rural, one is urban, one is supposedly blue, one is supposedly red. Uh, and yet when they come together, these young people who are terrified of each other at first, because they're going to they're going to say, like the girl from the South Bronx is going to say, they won't know why I wear a hijab and listen to rap. And the, the kid from Kentucky, he might say they won't understand why my father owns a hunting rifle. And then suddenly they get together. Uh, and when they step into one of the shoes and tell one of the stories, they realize that they're a lot more alike than they are uh, unlike. So they um, and then when that happens, uh, things happen on the ground. And uh, I've seen it occur uh, where, where we turn this sort of newfound empathy uh, amongst young people into action. Um, and so uh, that's what we do at, uh, uh, at Narrative 4. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the power of stories because you, you described the, the kid from rural Kentucky or the kid from, uh, you know, the Bronx, getting them together, they're telling their stories and it's going it, to, it does something, it changes them. There's uh, a line that I think you have in the book that I've actually heard the, uh, the actual person say this, Bassam, who we'll talk, talk more about in a second, where he said, uh, if we don't know each other story above ground, we'll only know each other below ground or something about to that extent of... <laughs> We don't know each other, therefore we're only going to experience death. What is what is it about storytelling that causes those barriers and those divisions to kind of fall to the wayside? Well, um, storytelling is about texture. It, it doesn't manipulate fact. Facts are, 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 are mercenary things. Facts can be used in all sorts of extraordinary ways and sort of manipulated and packed off to whatever sort of, um, you know, uh, battle you want them to go. Texture or, and or the human heart uh, is a very different thing. And that's where stories come in. When we tell stories about things that have happened to us uh, and t- t- tell stories about uh, things that have been taken from us or things that have been been done to us, good and bad, um, we get at a different form of emotional truth than if we're giving opinions. Opinions are essentially uninteresting. Um, questions are much more uh, powerful and storytelling brings about things about quest- questions and questioning. And, you know, frankly, uh, you know, I like sitting down uh, going to the pub 
uh, and mm-hmm. listening to people's stories um, and, um, you know, people looking you in the eye and saying, you know, guess what? You won't believe this. And, um, and and that's how we get to know know one another. Increasingly, um, uh, you know, it seems that people are refusing to know those outside their immediate social spheres. So uh, my novel, which is called A Paragon, which is um, a shape with a countably infinite number of sides, is largely about two men, uh, one Israeli, one Palestinian, who really should not know each other, who really should not be friends, who really should uh, not be listening to one another in the traditional constructs of their uh, society at this particular moment. But guess what? And you know it because you've met them. They do. Uh, their names are Rami um, and Bassam, uh, Bassam Aramin uh, from um, Jericho in uh, Palestine and Rami Elhanan from uh, West Jerusalem in Israel. And they travel the world telling the story of how they lost their daughters uh, in separate incidents um, in the conflict and how they use the power of storytelling as a weapon to... Um, to negotiate grief and to talk about uh, this very complicated word that we have called peace. Hmm. I heard uh, Bassam talk about when he first met you that he he had a trust for you early on because he saw the tears in your eyes. Mm. And I, so I was in the city of Jaffa and I met Bassam and actually Rami wasn't there when I uh, made the trip over there, but I, uh, Instead, got to meet uh, Robbie, who I assume you've probably encountered. Sure. She is this charismatic, endearing, charming woman who is just amazing. She's absolutely amazing, yeah. She lost her son, um, who was um, serving in the Israeli army. Uh, David was her son's name, yeah. And so I'm sitting on the other side of the table from them, and uh, that image will be indelibly etched into my soul of these two people just sitting there having told the story over and over again, yet it still has layers uh, to it. It, It's almost like functioning like a razor, just like ripped apart part of my soul to experience Mm -hmm. this sort of hurt. Uh, And and so Bassam says, you know, I begin to to trust you, Colin, because he saw the tears in your eyes. Mm -hmm. How, as you're going about the process of sharing this story, how much weight does that put on you to, to know the actual people and to know the heartbreak. And in some ways, like as a pastor, I eulogize people uh, in a way that it's not a book. It's, it's a 30 minutes of service, but it seems like what you're doing is a, a prolonged eulogy about the hardest part of their life. How much weight did you carry as you're doing that? A lot, a lot. Um, you know, I've written 10 books, uh, in my life and I've written about all sorts of different things. I've written about, you know, Ireland, the Irish peace process. I've written about Rudolf Nureyev, the dancer. I've written about the Romani people, uh, you know, the gypsies in, 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 in Europe. Um, and then I've written this book, uh, about Israel and Palestine. And, um, this one, uh, is undoubtedly the most difficult one. It's a novel, but it's using two real characters um, at its center and using real stories. So I had a responsibility for the weight of their story, but I also wanted to tell it uh, differently than, than than other people might have told it before. So in certain ways, it's kind of experimental in that it's 
it's chopped up into a thousand and one different cantos uh, or different stories, if you will. Some of them long, some of them short, some of them like really super short. Yeah. Uh, two of them blank. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I wanted to disrupt people. Um, and I think that's what good storytelling uh, has to do. It has to throw you off balance. Um, I want to, I want you, the reader, to be thrown off your sense of comfortable balance um, and emerge from the book not having, not knowing uh, much more, but being very curious. Again, like searching for questions rather than being given answers. And like saying, saying, coming out of a book saying, why does that happen? Why is the little girl um, shot in the back of the head with, but you know, with a rubber bullet from um, a matter of a couple of yards? Why is that other little girl? Why is she blown up in the streets of Jerusalem? It all sounds so gruesome and, and, and difficult. But here's the beautiful thing about it: Bassam and Rami, the fathers, are figures of absolute incredible hope. Um, and, and one of the beautiful things about this story that is in the face of all available evidence, these men somehow still attribute hope uh, to the world. And I think that's an extraordinary act of grace uh, and empathy and kindness and decency and uh, whatever other words you want to use that, that, that come along uh, with that. Yeah, it is that hope that is so peculiar about the their story, their their witness. Uh, I don't know if you read uh, Tahani Coates' uh, Between Me and the World, uh, which uh, you did. Okay. A- mm-hmm. At the end of that book, I felt hopeless. And I-, I felt like that's what the author was was in some ways communicating. He didn't have a sense of, of hope that things would be different. Now, you look at the, the struggle uh, in America, especially of uh, race relations, and it's, it's obviously not the same, but it is similar that you have this conflict that is so layered. Um, and then you traverse over to the other side of the world and you see this conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, yet they offer, Bassam and Rami are offering this this hope. And it, I, I'm not trying to compare or contrast those two, but I think many people find themselves hopeless in a situation that you, you just go, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to undo this. And many people look at uh, the conflict over there as like almost impossible to fix. Yeah. Yet they have a witness of hope in the middle of it. How, how do you think... How do you well, think we, we we approach that hope or, or access it? Well, I've got to say say this. I, you know, um, I'm Irish. Um, we had 800 years of uh, struggle. 20 years ago, all this week, this coming Good Friday, uh, we had had the Good Friday Agreement. Actually, 22 years ago, negotiated by Senator George Mitchell and others. And for 22 years, we have had the most extraordinary peace in Northern Ireland. If you had said that in the 1970s, when people were being blown up left, right and center, if you'd said it in the 1980s, when men were on hunger strike in the prisons, dying and left to die, if you'd said it even in the early 1990s, that uh, you would have a a peace agreement in place, people would have said, you're absolutely bonkers. Um, The possibility of peace is always there. What Bassam and Rami both say is, can you, can, could you believe in, say, post-World War II uh, that eventually there would be an Israeli embassy in Berlin? 
and a German embassy in Tel Aviv? Who could possibly believe that? Who could possibly believe there would be peace in Ireland? So who could possibly believe right now that there will be peace in Israel uh, and, and, and Palestine? One has to dare to hope uh, in a certain way. And one has to dare to believe. Uh, and, and that's not being like soft and fuzzy and, you know, sort of um, up in the air. My, my take on optimism is this. Uh, and 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 um, you know some people will will sort of uh, sort of laugh laugh their their way away from me after I say this. I think a really good optimist has to be a really strong cynic first. You have to be as cynical as the greatest cynic. You got to go toe to toe with the, the the person who says it's dark, it's troublesome, it's dreary, it's you know, it, it, we, we cannot get out. And you say, okay, fair enough. It's dark, it's troublesome, it's weary, it's dreary, it's all these different things. But so what? That's no great revelation. Cynicism has never been any great revelation to me. I don't find it intellectually stimulating. I don't find it morally stimulating. I don't like them at parties. Uh, you know, they bore me. Um, but the person who is able to be cynical and say, yeah, that situation in Israel and Palestine, that's horrible. And here's why it's horrible, blah, 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 blah. But uh, uh, we got to somehow vault away from the cynicism and create some sort of optimism despite all the evidence. That's a muscular person. So I actually feel that um, the optimist is actually a lot stronger, a lot more muscular, um, a lot more intellectually agile than the uh, the cynic happens to be. And in fact, if you really want to, 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 to um, uh, you know, make a cynic angry, what you've got to do is you've got to tell them that they're sentimental. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Uh, because they're, they're, they don't think they're sentimental at all. They say the optimists are sentimental. But you tell them they're sentimental because they're only living in the cloud of their own immediate understanding. They have very narrow defined limits. A sentimentalist is one who refuses to go outside her or his uh, immediate area. A sentimentalist is, is, is somebody who just refuses, you know, to, 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 to they, they become soft in their, in their own little world. And I think um, cynics are, 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 are soft and sentimental. If you say this to them, I guarantee that you probably get a, a thump in the jaw or, <laughs> or at least, you know, uh, uh, eyes raised to heaven. But um, I think it's, a, it's an interesting way to think about it. And so um, I believe in, uh, in optimists, you know, I believe, say, for example, you know, somebody like um, Martin Luther King was a great optimist, an optimist of the character. He didn't shy away from how nasty all thing, the, the, the things were that were going on around him. He was prepared to call things out. Um, you know, he was prepared to, 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 to do all this stuff. Nelson Mandela, you know, all these different people, Rami and Bassam. In, uh, in 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 you know uh, in Israel and Palestine, they are prepared to say it's dark, but but guess what? We have to know each other, just like you said. If we do not know each other above ground, we will end up knowing each other six feet below ground. And guess what? I don't really want that to happen. No, I've heard you say elsewhere that um, intelligence is holding two competing truths together. 
And this idea, like muscular is the word you just used. The idea of intelligence in some ways is the ability, the strength to hold. Our present reality is pretty ominous and dark, and it's overwhelming, but there's another truth that I can hold to that it doesn't have to stay this way. Yes, yes. And, and, and I'm not the first person to say that. And, you know, the, the, that, that the essence of intelligence is the ability to hold contradictory ideas in the palm, uh, palms of your hands or even in the palm of one hand. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and, 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 and one thing that I think we're, we're, we're scared of is just to say, um, you know, I'm confused. Uh, gosh, I don't know what's going on. Oh, gosh. You know, um, uh, you know the more we, we say that, the, more, the the better and bigger we can actually uh, become it's and and and, and it's not a, a bad thing to say you know i'm sad i don't know what's going on uh, around me right now um but all this this these politicians and corporations and people artists too uh, who 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 say things like you know um this is the absolute truth and this is what's right and this is the, you know this is the way it should be they, they, they don't seem to have uh, any, uh, I, I, I don't know, they, 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 their lungs are very small. Uh, they, 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 I, I don't want to be around those sort, the, 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 those sort of people. So holding contradictory ideas, being a Democrat and a Republican both, being left-wing and a right-wing both, being, you know, uh, we're... You know, we're a much more nuanced people than uh, than than we're giving credit for. We're not all just like one particular thing. The idea that we're one thing is really dangerous. Yeah. Well, I mean, the book is kind of titled off a polygon that has countless shapes and sides, sizes. Right. Uh, so you're kind of trying to get which side. Note, I always like when a book has the title in the actual book. I feel like they're. Mm. I, it always makes me feel like, oh yeah, that's why it's the title. I like that. It's an, that's just a side note. I appreciate that. I also feel like in mov- in movies, whenever the title is actually said, there needs to be like a bell that goes off or something. I feel like we just need, like you should get an award for that. It should happen. But okay, so you you write this story in which you're describing like this this multifaceted uh, experience that, that people from different places have different takes on, and yeah. it, it it could seem that you're writing just a political book. That it's, okay, this is Israeli-Palestinian, you're going to lean a little bit right, you're going to lean a little bit left, depending on who's reading it. Um, but it's obviously a parental story. It's, it's about two dads. And right. for as big of a story as it is, it's really just a small story about uh, two small pe- uh, you know, two little people, two kids whose lives were lost and how it impacted families in an unbelievable way. Yes. Do, do, you, th- you. do you think moving away from... Making something political to making it personal is the way for us to move forward. I mean, it seems like you're trying to get us there. Um, I do believe that we can be tiny and epic at the same time. Um, I do believe that the way to understand one another is to talk in terms of stories and to talk about the supposedly, you know, anonymous corners of of, of human experience. Um, that, you know, all this stuff about, you know, the deal of the century or whatever is, is all bunkum. Uh, really, what's going to happen if there's going to be peace? It's going to bubble up from underneath and there's going to be some 15-year-old kid come along and, 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 and uh, you know, start a movement, whether it be like a Greta Thunberg or wh- whether it be a 30-year-old or 45-year-old or a 95-year-old. It doesn't matter to me. So, you know, somebody, all this stuff is going to come from underneath for years and years 
years and years we've been pushing it down, put, you know, saying this is the idea, this is how it should be laid down. But but if something bubbles up from underneath, which it can through stories and storytelling, particularly in the contemporary age, uh, when we all have access to one another, um, something uh, radically beautiful can uh, can occur through the art and um, uh, methods of, of 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 listening to one another's stories and saying, "Gosh, that's complicated." Wow, oh, gosh, I didn't know that. Hey, gosh, you're not so different to me, are you? You know, oh, um, and and um, and if we do that, we can destroy some of the policies that are in place that are. You know, um, taking people's lives away, taking people's land away, taking people's houses away, taking people's rights away. Um, and uh, I think, you know, is that an idealistic point of view? Yeah. Um, and fair enough. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm happy enough to be called a, a, an idealist. When I was in seminary, one of the things I learned in homiletics class, pre- preaching class, is that the text that you're preaching from should dictate how you preach the sermon. So if it's a, a narrative, like an Old Testament narrative, well, or Jewish text na- narrative, y- it needs to be narrative in the way that you, you deliver that text. Whereas if you're writing something from Proverbs, or preaching something from Proverbs, it should reflect that as well. You've written 10 books. This one is obviously unique in, in that uh, it's real people, and you're kind of telling their story, but it's also, the story is uh, is a story unlike any other, the Israeli-Palestinian you know conflict. As you're creating like this, this daring approach to a novel, did you feel like that this is something that like our culture needs now because the way that we hear and listen and process stories with the internet and the uh, the diminished attention span because of social media is it like pragmatic or is it also a reflection of the story itself and that the story itself requires a you know unique or daring way to tell? Uh, it's a little bit of both, Luke. Um, I mean, um, I think you put your finger on on a couple of very important things. Um, the the you know the novel is extremely fractured because I wanted to reflect the fractured na- nature uh, of where we happen to be right now. Um, amazingly enough, before the, uh, the the virus struck, I was out on the road and I was with Rami and Bassam, but we would go to schools and and and. Uh, it was kids who were 14, 15, 16, uh, who, um, who got the book probably better than anybody else. They were just, they were like, yeah, this is no big deal. We, so we jump from one thing to the next. We go from, from a bird flying over Palestine to, you know, Ireland, then back, you know, to Russia and then, you know, back and forth and, um, always coming back to the story of the little girls. They, think like that we uh, you know that increasingly the imagination is like that but also i wanted to knock people um off balance as well and write a book in a way that kind of hasn't been really written uh, before certainly not about this um particular um sort of subject and also i wanted to pay homage to you know a thousand and one nights uh, the arabian nights story um and the idea of a widening cathedral um, of stories and storytelling and the way that, you know, it happens when we get together with, with, with other people, we, 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 we increase the size of the, the cathedral of the, of the world by adding our, our story to it. But only if uh, we're prepared to listen to the story of the other person It's not, it's not good enough just to tell stories. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to listen.
So I, I can't just tell you my story. I need to be able to listen to your story, right? Yeah. Okay. So, mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, jump back to what you said. The Thousand and One Chapters, it's a tribute to Thousand and One uh, Nights, right? Nice. Could it connect yeah. the dots a little bit more on that. Explain that a little bit more. Well, um, uh, actually, I have the book here in front of me. I, I wonder if I can um, find the, the, the spot where I, where, where I talk about um, uh, A Thousand and One Nights. Um, so uh, I just talk a little bit about uh, Borges and Borges says the book A Thousand One Nights was so vast and inexhaustible that it was not even necessary to have read it since it was already an intricate part of humankind's unconscious memory. Uh, the stories existed on their own at first and were joined together, strengthening one another, an endless cathedral, a widening mosque, a random everywhere. Um, and so that's what I try to do with these particular little uh, fragments. I bring them all together. They seem to be random, but they're everywhere. And and to make of this small room uh, and everywhere and to make of Smadar and Abir's story, which you so presciently say is like seems to be a small story. It's actually really a, a, a giant tale of, of, of the human heart at the same time. So, um you know, Faulkner used to talk about, um, you know, what's the essence of literature? What's the meaning of literature? It's uh, to, to confront the human heart in conflict with itself and talk about all those big things like love, pride, pity, sacrifice, compassion, uh, all those things that, that, that sort of matter uh, to us. And then in the end, the book is also a very simple book in that it just all it says is we need to know each other. Yeah. So Rami and Bassam, along with Rob B and and others in the parent circle, have made it their life's work so that others know their stories and the stories of people who are like them, people who are quote unquote opposite from them. And in the book, you describe how uh, Rami has a sense of ennui from having to tell the story over and over again, almost like this actor who's in the same play, you know, night in and night out. Mm-hmm. As you witness that firsthand, I assume you've seen that yeah. story told over and over again. Um, yeah, it always rocks me to the core, though. See, the, 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 when I met them, and, and, and I think you probably had this uh, same experience, um, you, you know, um, I felt that they were speaking directly to me and they'd never told this story before, uh, even though they have told it thousands and thousands and thousands of times, sometimes six, seven times a day. Can you imagine like telling? And But they don't treat it like they're actors. They treat it because it happened to them. It's not, it's not an act. There's no like uh, applause line coming through. They tell it because they know that one person hears it, you can change the world. I mean, and, and, and that's, you know, a very, uh, you know, uh, a spiritual notion that, 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 you know, you go out, you tell your story. And if you tell your story and somebody hears it, they can go out and do, you know, uh, they can repair uh, repair the world. It, it, it's Christian, it's Muslim, it's Jewish, it's all of these things um, together. And, um, you know, and I think, um, you know, if if we get a proper chance to, to, to listen to the stories of the likes of Rami and Bassam, then we can actually, um, you know, go about repairing the world. They They talk about throwing a crack in the wall, you know, like their story puts a crack in the wall. Yeah. Well, Put a crack in the wall, then the light comes through. You put another crack in the wall, then another little bit of light comes through. You put another crack in the wall, and a bit of dust comes crumbling down. And eventually, uh, 
miracle of miracles, uh, you put a crack in the wall and the whole wall comes tumbling down. Yeah. And we've seen that even in, in, in my lifetime, we think of Berlin and uh, obviously the metaphor for anyone who knows the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you, you understand that the, there's a, a massive wall uh, that is literally uh, in the midst of it. And if you've ever been there, which I, know, I, I just assume you have, the, some of the artwork that you find on that, some of you know, Banksy's piece, pieces yeah, yeah. that are there, I, the walled-off hotel is just on the other side of it. And it's just, yeah. Banksy made that, right? Isn't that Banksy? Banksy Banksy launched it, and 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 it's owned by local Palestinian businessmen. So just so 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 the listeners know, um, you know, Bethlehem is in the West Bank. Uh, Bethlehem is not uh, part of uh, of Israel. You know where the 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 the, the all, um, so many of the famous churches are. The churches uh, uh, are, are are in Bethlehem. Um, the, to go from Israel to the West Bank. You have to go through a checkpoint. It's called Checkpoint 300. Um, it's a huge checkpoint. It was only built in uh, uh, about 20 years ago, believe it or not. Uh, 25 years ago, it was a barrel in the middle of the road. Now it is a watchtower. Now it is a huge wall. It's rolling uh, barbed wire. It has sensors. It has guns. It has tanks, water tanks, skunk tanks, where they spray people with, 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 sk- with skunk that smells like decompressed uh, uh, or uh, decomposing bodies and so on. This sort of thing is going on. And, and, and this is on the, in the entrance to Bethlehem, you know, one of, one of our, our holiest uh, places. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I just wish that we could all, uh, you know, walk through that, that checkpoint to experience what so many Palestinians have to experience every single day. And, uh, you know, um, Israelis can't go and it's not their fault. It's the fault of their government. Mm-hmm. Their government will not allow them to, uh, to, to visit the, the West Bank for, uh, for, uh, w- what is called um, security, and, and we can understand this. I can understand the word security, but I can also understand the manufacture of uh, fear. And um, you know, just beyond the checkpoint is this place called the Walled Off W A A L L E D, the Walled <laughs> Off uh, Hotel, um, which is sort of a, a, a spoof uh, on um, a, a hotel which has a view of uh, a wall. And um, it's kind of uh, darkly sarcastic and um, and ironic, um, but it's also deeply sad. And one hopes that you know, ten years, twenty years, thirty years from now, there would be no need for, uh, or, or or there'd just be a tiny little bit of the wall remaining. Although I got to tell you, I mean, today I just heard news that the wall was extended around the monastery in Kremazin. Mm. Uh, which is heartbreaking, which means that the, 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 the monastery and the convent, by virtue of a wall, are now in different countries. Um, I mean, these, the, this is the sort of thing that, you know, uh, when I think about the world and, 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 and how dark it is, that's when the darkness sometimes takes over my eyes. And I think I can't do anything except maybe tell the story and, and, and have people think about those monks and have people think about those nuns uh, and have people think about those people in Beit Jala who have to deal with a wall literally running through their back garden. That's 
the the imagery of the nuns and the monks like just being separate from each other is uh it's fitting and but like you're saying, telling the story is what, what tears that apart. It puts a crack in the wall. There's one piece, I don't know if Banksy did it or not, but there's one piece near the Waldorf Hotel in which there is a literal crack um, probably 20 feet in the air, and there's like these two hands on either side. It looks like they're pulling it open, and it's just, it's beautiful. That's right. But that's what, that's what art, that's what stories do. Like They, they try to yeah. pull us away from this imagination or from what we see to hold another picture of what it could be, and it and creates that sort of optimistic or hopeful picture. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Banksy has done so, some some incredible work, including, you know, like uh, the picture of um, a, a, a supposed rioter, uh, you know, in, in the in the riot yeah. post throwing, flowers, you know, yeah, uh, launching flowers through the air and a young girl like rising up over the wall on, 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 on a number of red balloons. Um, and, uh, you know, some people say, well, you shouldn't be, you know, making art out of this and you shouldn't be making tourism out of out, out, out of this. But I think art brings um, brings a loudness to it uh, and that, that you have to speak out. I mean, how else are you going to um, are, are you going to speak out? Um, you know, you can't just uh, remain silent. Uh, what's that famous quote? All that it takes for evil to exist is for good people to remain silent. Um, and you know, so, so I think we gotta, um, we gotta speak out as much as we can. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely right. And, and so I love the fact that you're telling a story about two parents, but it's a story that kind of sheds light on something that, you know, many of us aren't even aware of it. And as I realize we're 30, 40 minutes in this conversation, I know some people haven't been even introduced to the conflict on a substantial level. So they'll go, Oh yeah, I know there's something going on. There's a West bank. There was, you know, an eight day war or something like that, but they don't, uh, they don't even know like the, like an intro, like a one-on-one to this conflict. I, I assume. Guess what? Hmm? Guess what? Hmm. That's okay. That's okay. And, and, and five years ago or six years ago, um, when I went, when, when, when I visited, I was the exact same. I knew Little or nothing. Now, I've been to Northern Ireland and seen the Northern Irish peace process and done these things. But about Israel and Palestine, I knew nothing. And I wrote this book for people who might know nothing and or people who might know everything. The book is sort of deliberately confusing at at first or seems deliberately confusing because it seems to be about a lot of different things. But then eventually, if you go through it, it's really only about one thing. And it's about these two men and their daughters and, 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 and their love for their daughters and how... They, you know, want to bring, um, uh, as we say, repair to the world by by by, by telling um, their stories. But it's okay, please. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to say, I don't know what in the world is going on in Israel, and I don't know even how to talk about Palestine. And can I use the word occupation? Can I use the word, you know, you know? It's okay for us to be, um, you know, uh, searching these things out. What what really annoys me is the people who pretend that that, that they know, and they actually don't. They're they're, they're the loudmouths. Um, you know, yeah. I'd, give, give give me give me any day, please, 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 give me somebody who's confused and 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 and, and sort of wants to know. Um, you know that that's that leads me to think about you know, you know our teachers. Um, 
you know, I, I, in this country, one of the things that I find, um, you know, mo- most uh, upsetting is that we don't um, we don't give our teachers an, enough uh, credit. It seems to me that our teachers are the ones who are holding contradictory ideas and, 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 and allowing us to understand. And also a lot of teachers understand it's OK to say, I don't know. It's OK to say I'm confused. Come to school afterwards. Let's have an extra session. Come to this book afterwards. Let's have an extra session. Let's start talking uh, about these sort of things. But um, yeah, of all the the, 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 the the heroes, there's a lot of heroes in this country right now, nurses and doctors. and um, But um, teachers will always be really high on my list of the, of the, of the heroes that are there. Hmm. I, did, did you have a, a teacher that stuck with you that, uh, that maybe got you into writing or... Yeah, 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 loads of them. I mean, so I grew up in Dublin, and 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 um, I can remember the names of my teachers from when I was like four, five, six, seven, eight. You know, Mr. Kells, and in, in in the equivalent of third grade, and and Pat O'Connor, and, and like all of these different people um, who 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 taught me. Um, and yeah, they, they they put books in your hand, and they put songs in your hand, and they put you know um, all sorts of things that 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 sort of open up the the the, the world for you. You know, um, I I before the the virus struck, um, I was traveling a lot, and um, you know you go to the airports and you hear uh, coming over the Tannoy, um, you know anybody with active military service. Um, or military uniform, please, you know, feel free to to board the plane first. And that's cool. I'm I'm happy. These people absolutely deserve to be, uh, you know, um, lauded and thanked for their service and, and, and everything like that. Wonderful. But I can't wait for the day when they say, oh, you teachers, you know, come up here, show your union card and 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 then and, and, and get on the plane uh, free. That will be a good day uh, in, 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 in and whether it be in Ireland or in the States. I mean, I live in the States now, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I would I, I would I would love to see that happen. I think that'd be great. My, I told you before, my wife's a nurse and uh, she was going to, to work the other day and she's getting dinner before her night shift and uh she walking out of a restaurant and someone said, thank you for your service. And my wife's like, am I in the military? Like, that's like a phrase you use for, for soldiers. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but I know that, uh, you know, her parents and her sister and my dad, who are all teachers or professors, uh, you know, deserve that same sort of respect as well. I mean, they're, they're doing things that are, uh, you know, changing the world, uh, you know, 20, 30, 100 kids a year, uh, that it, it makes a big difference. It makes a huge difference, a huge, huge, huge difference. And and um, I, I, I want to see our, you know, our political leaders and our business leaders and our religious leaders and our artists and whatever else, our pastors, Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, celebrating these people. Yeah. And getting out there and saying, you know, um, let's celebrate the supposed, you know, like the, 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 the supposed ordinary people, because they're the extraordinary ones uh, in the in, in the long run. It um you know, it, that's not pie in the sky. That's not airy fairy. That's that's real stuff. You know, that's real stuff. They're they're soldiers on the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, what I was going to say a few minutes ago, like uh, a lot of us don't even know Israeli-Palestinian conflict one hundred and one. I know before I went on the Telos trip, I was cramming. I read a couple books on the plane out there because I I would have definitely been in that camp as well. Just didn't didn't know much. But I would say that your new new book in some way could function as an introductory for for people who don't know anything about the the lived experience of right. of two people. Like this is a this is an introduction to it. And I heard uh, Rami 
say about this book that it sounds like hearing yourself recorded. And I, mm. I can only imagine like that is the highest honor you could get as you're trying to tell a story that, that's based on them. It's also a character, but that, that he hears himself in your writing. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was amazing. And, and um, when we were traveling together, we, we had a chance to go to, to Pittsburgh. We went to Boston. We went to New York before they had to return home and, and, and uh, because of a, a family um, matter and also the coronavirus. Um, we were on stage together and it was the, 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 the three of us traveling. It was the weirdest thing because I, I would introduce them and here come the two characters from my novel. And people were like, <laughs> what? Novel? And, and 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 these these men are real but yeah it's it's sort of a hybrid novel um it's it's fiction um and non-fiction together and it is um uh israel palestine 101 in the sense that it doesn't try to it says it's okay uh to not actually know uh what's going on here for now let's go recognize what's going on uh in these human hearts uh, and let's see these people who, who are grieving because of this. Uh, and then um, after that, then we can go learn some more about area A, area B, area C, whatever it happens to be. Um, and I think that that's the way to do it. We touch people by touching the human in them. Um, and then they get interested. Otherwise, it just all becomes like facts and figures and becomes boring. Yeah. And that was my experience on the Telos trip is that you – you learn the lived experience of uh, of someone like Bassam, who's spent what seven years in prison, uh, classified as a terrorist, and then you also get to know settlers who uh, have a different view of the world, and you know they're not evil either, and in the sense that they're human just as well. Uh, so anyway, I, I love what you're doing with the book. Uh, there are a lot of things that we could go on. I know uh, you, you got to run. Uh, we could talk about the fact that you live in Austin, Texas, where I'm from, and as a Texan, I feel like I failed my state for not talking about Texas first. So my apologies. No, but listen, I, I, I lived in Brenham, Texas for a couple of years um, and near in little town of Independence where I worked with um, juvenile delinquents who I was probably making them more delinquent than they already were. Um, I was a counsellor um, <clears throat> and then I went to UT. So um, I got my, um, my BA uh, at the ripe old age of 25 uh, in uh, University of Texas and I actually worked um, in a place called the Texas Showdown Saloon, which is no longer uh, in uh, Austin, but it was um, uh, quite a place. And, and I, can I just say, Texans, they were incredibly friendly, mm-hmm. incredibly, incredibly friendly. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Big Bend, uh, by the way, yeah. is probably one of my favorite places in the world. Do, do you still have the ability to go hook them? I mean, do you still... Do that at, yeah, once in a while? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to hear you say hook em with your accent, but... Uh, <laughs> hook em. There it is. There it is. That's what I was looking for. Well, hey, this has been an honor. Uh, a Paragon, it's out now. I got an uh, an email from my publisher. I've got a book that comes out in May, and uh, they said that book sales have uh, have come to a screeching halt <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. let's let's bring them not to a screeching halt, especially with your book. So people go go get a copy of this one. It's a good one, and uh, I think you will uh, it'll it'll do something to your soul. So go get a copy of it. Thank you so much. Thank you for the time. All right. Thanks cheers. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>